Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, January 20th, we are studying Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The Sermon on the Mount is one of the most well-known sections, not only of Matthew's gospel, but of the entire Bible. And that sermon begins with one of its most well-known and most often quoted, perhaps sometimes misquoted parts, the Beatitudes. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Appold. Pastor Appold serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Hi, thanks for having me back on, Tim. So, Pastor Appled, as we get started here into the Sermon on the Mount, some of your notes mention that there's some typology going on in Matthew's Gospel that puts invites us to compare and contrast both Jesus and Moses. So as you build some context here for us leading up into the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, help us to, to see some of that typology between Moses and Jesus that Matthew's laying out for us. Sure. Um, yeah, I think that this is this is not unique to Matthew. I mean, in, in other places in Scripture, I think you get Jesus and Moses compared or Moses held up as kind of a, a type of Christ who is to come. But especially here in Matthew's Gospel, um, and I think our listeners will, will have some of the, um, the Christmas readings maybe in mind. Um, it starts really there. I think you have um, Jesus is born, and Herod immediately um, persecutes him, right, immediately tries to go and, and kill him. And so I think that already there you're getting kind of a, um, uh, not a retelling, but it's, it's very similar to what happens with Moses and Pharaoh, right? And so Jesus, uh, as, even as an infant, is compared back with Moses, or his life seems to follow a similar pattern. And uh, that includes going down to Egypt and coming out of Egypt. So that, uh, again, it's like the, the history of Israel is kind of um, relived or repeated in the life of Jesus himself, um, and especially with the key figures in Israel. And I think none, uh, well, I guess we could debate who's the greatest <laughs> figure in the Old Testament, but Moses certainly has a very high position uh, within uh, Israel's history. He's the one who leads them out of Egypt. He's the servant of the Lord there. Um, he's, he, um, he, he leads them through the wilderness, and he eventually brings them right to the brink of the promised land. So uh, if you're looking for kind of the similarities between Jesus's earthly life and Moses's, you can see it with the, um, you know, the persecution that they face, uh, even as infants. Um, but then it continues with uh, Jesus comes back up out of uh, Egypt, and he goes up, and he ends up living up there in Galilee, um, just like Moses, or similar, not just like, but similar to the way Moses uh, led the people out of Egypt into Israel. Um, but then the the real, I think for for us in the Beatitudes here, um, the 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 main work of Moses uh, is as a prophet, and this comes up at the end of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. There's a there's a key prophecy in Deuteronomy 
that says that God will raise up a prophet like me. This is Moses speaking uh, like me from among your brothers. Um, That's in Deuteronomy 18. Um, And then at the very end of the book in 34, uh, you get this little note, almost like an editorial comment. um, And there hasn't arisen a prophet like Moses who saw God face to face uh, to this day. Now that's written before the time of the New Testament, because when Jesus comes, well, lo and behold, here is the prophet like Moses, um, who not only sees God face to face, but has an even more intimate knowledge of the Father, um, because he is the eternal Son, equal to the Father um, with Jesus. Does that, I, I've probably covered more ground <laughs> in a couple minutes there than, than I should have, Tim, but let me just pause there and let me get some of your, your feedback. No, that, that's all really good. The The parallel between Moses as an infant and Jesus as a, a young child, however old he is exactly there, we, we don't know for sure, he's under two, is certainly very striking, and I think starts to invite those comparisons. In today's text in particular, I'll just, I'll just read the, the first verse, Matthew 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And, and here at the beginning of chapter 5, it, it seems that some of this Moses typology is coming out again with Jesus going up a mountain. Is that another one of the, the parallels that we're going to draw between yeah. Jesus and Moses? I think so. So the, the key mountain with Moses is Mount Sinai. Um, there, when they, they come out of Egypt, the destination is Sinai, or that's the initial uh, place where they're going to meet with God. And uh, they get to Sinai, and everybody, I'm sure, was excited. They finally reached their goal. But then uh, you'll remember, and I think I even did uh, one of these episodes with you, Tim, um, the appearance of God at Mount Sinai is terrifying, and, uh, you know, thunder and lightning and and thick darkness. And so the people say, "Um, Moses, you go up for us. (laughs) And, And so Moses is the one who goes up the mountain, receives the revelation from God, and then um, our listeners will be familiar with this, comes back down the mountain, and he's carrying, uh, when he comes down, the, uh, the Ten Commandments, right, written by the, ha- by the hand of God. So Jesus uh, here, there's no reference to, you know, that this was some kind of supernatural appearance on the mountain, but it certainly invites, again, that comparison with Moses. The mountain, uh, just as Moses went up the mountain and received the revelation from God and then spoke to the people, that's the role of a prophet, right, to receive God's revelation and then pass it on. So Jesus goes up the mountain, and he sits down, and he starts, to, and, and that's a position of authority there, and he's now going to open his mouth, and what comes out of the mouth of Jesus? The words of God. And I think that's one of the places where the, the Moses typology, I think, is there, and, and we would—you just can't read this without comparing him to Moses— at the same time, you still have to see Jesus as as much greater than Moses, and and even I mean, you know, you quoted that verse from Deuteronomy eighteen that a prophet greater than Moses is going to come. And with Jesus here, what's totally different about him, as we'll see in, in a few episodes from now, is that when Jesus speaks, it's not just that he's receiving it from God and then speaking, but he speaks with his authority. That's going to be something that they'll recognize at the very end. I mean, he's going to say things like. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. So not yeah. only does Jesus take right. the role of Moses on the mountain, but but I think ultimately we should say that he's taking the role of, of Yahweh on the mountain, speaking with that kind of authority too. 
Yeah, I think I think you're right. So with with Moses, there is this big deal, and and all the prophets have the refrain of "Thus says the Lord" or "This is what God says," right? Um, and they can't speak unless God gives them something to speak. But with Jesus, there's no. It's not like he has to go and inquire of the Lord um, because he is the <laughs> because he is the Lord, and so there's no longer. Um, a second, there's no, there's not a go between anymore, um, because in Jesus you have both of these things. He is fully man, um, and at the same time fully God, and so he, his voice, his human voice, is the voice of God. Uh, there's no need for dreams or for visions uh, or or those kinds of ways that God dealt with the prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, but now he just opens his mouth, and it's. I think it's very. Um, telling, right? Uh, he opens his mouth. If you, if we just went back a chapter, you had Jesus. I didn't mention this before, but um, in the wilderness, Jesus is um, battling with the devil, right? And he's, he's facing the devil's temptations and where Israel failed um, and even Moses failed uh, in the wilderness, Jesus uh, conquers the devil, right? Every one of his temptations is overcome. But one of the things Jesus quotes is Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds or comes out of the mouth of God. And, uh, and so now Jesus sits down and he opens up his mouth and what comes out? Uh, this, you know, this greater than bread, uh, stuff that can, the words that can actually sustain, uh, sustain life. Let's go ahead and, and read the text in its entirety. Then this is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, commonly called the Beatitudes. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Apple, before we really start digging in maybe particular, let's, let's keep an introductory couple things yet still. If you've got a red-letter Bible... You know, this is that section of Matthew's gospel where you really start to see all red letters for, for three whole chapters, five, yeah. six, seven. We haven't seen a ton of, of red letters so far in Matthew's gospel. We've heard a little bit of his preaching. Back in, in 417, we heard what Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So how does how does the preaching that we see Jesus start here in the Sermon on the Mount relate to what he's already done in terms of his preaching ministry? Well, I think in, in chapter four, it's much, you don't have um, the sense of a sustained sermon. I mean, there's, it's possible, right, that Jesus just said that one sentence and that counted as a sermon. Um, I don't know if, Tim, if you could get away with preaching a one sentence <laughs> sermon. I think I probably could. I, I, I bet you know. could too, right? Um, I don't, well, I don't know if I would want to. I don't, maybe right, some other right. people would yeah. want no, us to, but right. um, no. 
that that seems to be much more of a summary of kind of here is encapsulated uh, in one sentence. Here's a summary of Jesus's teaching ministry or his preaching ministry. But in uh, chapter five, six and seven, and this happens in a couple places, uh, Matthew has kind of uh, put together uh, much more detailed. Uh, here's what Jesus preaching consists of. Right. Um, and so you have an elaboration of, well, what does maybe we could put it this way. What does the kingdom of heaven look like? Um, you know, what does it mean to live in the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is going to explain that. I think especially the Sermon on the Mount uh, is an, uh, an elaboration of what the kingdom of heaven um, here and now begins to look like and what it will fully be uh, when it comes in all its in all its fullness. Right. I, I think that that's what I was that, that you answered what I was trying to ask, I think. <laughs> how does how does the Sermon on the Mount begin to explain Jesus preaching? And I think you're right that we're going to see, well, what is what is life under the reign of God look like here in the Sermon on the Mount? What about the, the matter of repentance? Yeah. The first word, how, do, how does this begin to explain the matter of repentance for us? Yeah, well, I think uh, if you think of Moses, again, I mean, Moses is um, a lot of times, especially I think in Lutheran circles, Moses is is very much connected with the law and the work of the law. Um, its primary function is to um, bring about repentance in a person and not so much in the Beatitudes. Do you see this? But definitely in the verses that follow, um, you have Jesus. Um, how do you how do you want to say this out Mosesing Moses? So, um, you know, he'll he'll talk about a couple of the commandments and say, as you mentioned already, you've heard it said, you know, Moses gave you the commandment, but I say to you, and Jesus explains the fullness of what the commandment always meant, but he uh, leaves no wiggle room for things like, um, you know, adultery is not just the act of adultery, but it's the whole um, lust that proceeds from the heart and the eye. What about, before, again, before we dig particularly into the Beatitudes, what about the audience of this sermon? Jesus sees the crowds, he goes up on the mountain, he sits down, his disciples come to him, and then he begins to speak. By the end of the sermon, the crowds are going to have a reaction to the, to the teaching. So I mean, how, how's that working with the audience of this? Is this primarily to the disciples, the crowds are overhearing it? Is there something else going on? Yeah, I've always wondered about about this, and I don't, I don't know that I have the answer. You might be able to give more detail here, Tim. But he's, uh, when you hear the, that term disciples, I think what comes to my mind right away is like the twelve, right, who are going to become the apostles. Um, they're sort of the inner core, the the main, you know, they're the closest to Jesus, if you want to say say it that way. But um, Jesus certainly had more than just the twelve disciples, and so it seems like we've got all kinds of people. Um, from Judea, from Galilee, um, who are coming out to hear him. Some are probably, uh, you know, Pharisees or scribes who are, you know, um, we don't know, were they immediately opposed to Jesus or did that opposition kind of come in later? Um, so maybe they're just kind of curious. There's some people who are just curious about this teacher from Nazareth. Uh, maybe there's some of uh, his family members who, um, you know, cousins, relatives, distant relatives like that who had grown up with him who want to hear. Um, I, I don't know if that answers your question. I, I don't know really who all is included in that crowd. Well, and I just, it's interesting, I think, to see that 
the disciples are singled out. And so, so far in Matthew's gospel, we've seen him call particularly four. The last yeah. part of chapter four, you get uh, Simon and Andrew, you get James and John. And, and then you get the disciples coming to him particularly, but the crowds are still there. And, and so I, I guess it, I mean, it seems like the words are going to be directed at the disciples in the sense that those are the ones who are going to hear and believe because they're following Jesus already. But the crowds are, are still around him somehow hearing some of this and to the effect that they're invited to hear and believe and, and become a part of this closer circle. Maybe that, I mean, that's, at least that's the picture that I've gotten in, in my mind as yeah. I'm sort of picturing Jesus on top of the mountain, disciples, crowds, something like that. Well, it's always, I think it's helpful when you're reading the Gospels, like um, paying attention to the different uh, settings where Jesus teaches. Sometimes it's very, very private um, with just, say, you know, Peter, James, and John. You know, those three get often, you know, on sort of the places like the Mountain of Transfiguration. It's just those three. Um, sometimes he's in people's homes. Sometimes he's seated at a table. You know, maybe it's a Sabbath meal or something like that. Um, other times he's in the synagogues. Um, sometimes he's in the temple. This one is is a little different because it is kind of open air preaching, and it's just open. Whoever is around, come out and listen. Um, is what it seems to be like, kind of an op- a public lecture, if you want to say it that way. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of, of looking at it. So let, let's talk a little more specifically then about the Beatitudes. And we, we've used that word several times. So define mm-hmm. some terms for us, Pat. What, what is a, what's a Beatitude? Yeah, we use that, um, t- that term, especially with these verses. Um, but these are, um, you can hear it's, it's not uh, poetry, maybe in the, <laughs> in the way we might think of it as, well, it's got a rhyme. Um, it, so Jesus isn't rhyming, but uh, each of his sentences here follows a very similar um, grammatical pattern, and they all start with the word blessed. So a beatitude, um, just kind of generally speaking, is a sentence that says, blessed is this person. And that's not, well, while we certainly uh, think of Matthew 5 kind of immediately as the beatitudes, there are other places in Scripture where you hear the same Um, I I hate to put it this way, but I don't know how else to say it, the same grammatical form, the same kind of saying. So um, in John's gospel, this one I think is going to be familiar to most people. Um, At the very end, after Jesus is risen, he appears to Thomas, and, you know, Thomas touches him and says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus will say, um, you believe because you have seen, blessed, just like our Beatitudes here, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So it's not unique here to Matthew 5, um, but this is where they're really all piled up together. These uh, blessed are the fill-in-the-blank. What's the, what's the force of this sort of blessing? When, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, particularly, again, these Beatitudes that we're looking at, is it a, is it a wish? Is it a prayer? Is it a declaration? What's the, what's the force of yeah. these statements from Jesus? Well, if it was, um, if this was just um, you or me speaking, Tim, uh, this, it might just be a wish. I, I hope that these people are blessed. And, and here's where we, um, we would want to define, uh, again, this is why we go into that whole Moses typology. We want to know who's the one who's speaking this, and how is, how are Jesus's words different than all other words. 
and they're different because they're God's words, right? Um, so I can say, blessed are, um, you know, blessed are the whatever, blessed are the, the Michigan Wolverines fans, but that doesn't make it actually happen because no matter what, and I say this as a Wolverines fan, we can't seem to win the big game, right? We always, anyways, I don't want to go into, <laughs> into all that. Um, but when Jesus says, blessed are whoever, it is, it's God's declaration and his word uh, actually confers what it says. So um, again, this is when we look at these specifically, these are not groups of people who anyone would consider blessed, right? Um, the, you know, that's the whole, that's part of the shock here is that Jesus is saying that people who are suffering are in fact blessed. And that doesn't seem to, to make sense because when we think of the word blessed, we think, um, you know, of such sayings as uh, too, too blessed to be stressed or something like that, right? People who are blessed are the ones who don't have problems, who aren't suffering. Um, but perhaps in God's eyes, um, what we see is not what he sees. So because this is Jesus speaking, then what he says is true. Uh, I think the, the, the way I've heard it said is his words are performative. They do what he says. So in a similar way, when God says, let there be light— when Jesus says, yep. blessed are the poor in spirit, it is so because of the speaker, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, if the judge says you're not guilty, then you're not guilty. But if, uh, you know, if just your neighbor says, well, I don't think he's guilty. Well, that might be your opinion, but does that actually have any force? Um, that's why you, you ask the question that way. Jesus's words uh, can do what, whatever they say, whatever he says. And, and then, too, on that, just that word blessed, or blessed, however it gets pronounced, it's, that's a word that I think it's thrown around quite a bit by Christians. And, and this isn't a bad thing that happens, but, but there's, I've, I've had encounters with Christians, they'll ask, how are you? And they'll say, rather than, I'm fine, which is usually what I say, they'll say, I'm blessed. And that's not a bad answer. I'm not, I don't mean to criticize that at all. But if it is just a, a substitute for, I'm fine, then maybe we're not understanding the full background of the word blessed. Yeah. And and you'll mm -hmm. see some English translations that instead of blessed are the poor in spirit or so forth, you'll see something like happy are, or I think I've even seen fortunate are. So what should we understand? Mm -hmm. I mean, what is Jesus bestowing on his people when he calls them blessed? Yeah, I think, I mean, even in the Bible, right? Even in, even in scripture, the word blessed gets used in different ways. Um, so it's, it's not automatically wrong to say that when things are going well, I'm blessed. I mean, I think that there's something true and valid about that. Um, but the blessing that Jesus is saying here, I think is more than just, um, you've, you're, you're happy. That's such a, I mean, that's a, it's just a bad translation, isn't it? Um, you might be, you might be happy, um, but you might not be. I mean, the mourners are kind of, by definition, not happy. So happy are the mourners. That that's a that's oxymoronic. Um, <laughs> so that would be a bad translation just from the get go. I think if you look back in Scripture, maybe maybe the the place to start is um, uh, with Genesis 12. You, I mean, you could go to various places in the Old Testament, but there you have uh, the promise given to Abraham that uh, in his offspring, that is in Jesus, all nations will be blessed. And that doesn't mean material prosperity, 
but it means the blessings of salvation. It's, it's uh, connected with God restoring his people um, back in a, in a similar way to where Adam and Eve were uh, in Genesis. Um, let me just pause there. I, I ha- sometimes have a tendency to, to <laughs> go a little too far away from the question. So you tell me, is that, am I going down the right track here? I think so. I, I think happy isn't strong enough, and fortunate isn't strong enough. Maybe, maybe in some places in Scripture, the word blessing is a little yeah. less. It's not as deep as it is here. But I, I like I like the connection to Genesis chapter twelve with the blessing given to Abraham. There, we've seen Matthew already tie Jesus back to Abraham as the one, the promised offspring of Abraham from the very beginning of the gospel. So I, I like that. And, and the more than material blessings too, but rather the promise of salvation so that I mean, you could almost translate it. And this is, this is not, I wouldn't translate it like this in terms of putting it down on paper, but, but so that we would hear it on our minds, saved are the poor in spirit. These, these blessed ones are the saved ones because they're connected to the offspring of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Uh, Pastor Apple, yeah. we've got just yeah. under a minute left on this side of the break. Help us tie up that part of the conversation. Yeah, I think if, if, we, if we recall that it's Jesus who's speaking, and, and he's speaking with the full authority of God, um, then whatever he, whoever he calls blessed, um, if you can think of it, again, as um, those who appear before God, whoever he says have his favor, those are the blessed ones. Um, and, th- and that might mean the people who we would agree and say, yeah, they've got everything going great in their life. Um, or it might be, uh, like it is here, that it's even people who have all kinds of suffering and, pers- and are, are even being persecuted, that those are the ones who have God's favor is on them, uh, even in the midst of their sufferings. And that's really the, the deeper point here with the Beatitudes. It's, it's not about just having it all in this world, um, but you're standing before God. That's ultimately the the concern of, of the Christian. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFU. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Monday, January 20th, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 with Pastor David Appold of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky. Pastor Appold, prior to the break, we'd spent plenty of time talking about the word blessed here in the Beatitudes, this very deep word that that those connected to Jesus, even when their life appears all suffering, in fact, they are saved. They have the blessing of Christ, the offspring of Abraham, because they are his. So take us then a little more into the Beatitudes. They seem to, you called them poetic, and they certainly have a, a similar structure. What kind of structure do we see in these verses here from the Beatitudes? Yeah, you see, um, if you look at the the tenses of the word of the the verbs or um, 
yeah, the, the think of the tense that these things are in. It's always blessed are, that's kind of in the present tense. So blessed right now are these people. But then uh, the second half of the beatitude of each of these sentences, or of, of almost all of them, um, says before there's it uh, will be. There's a, there's a future tense going on, right? So um, if I just read the second half of most of these, they shall be comforted, they shall inherit the earth, they shall be satisfied, they shall receive mercy. These things are going to be theirs in the future, but they're not theirs right now, presently. Presently, they endure um, poverty of spirit, mourning, meekness, hungering and thirsting, um, those sorts of things. And so in the present, what do these people have? They, they have the promise of Jesus, and that's it. And, and that's it is enough for them to be blessed. So even though they mourn right now, the future comfort that is there, theirs gives them blessing right now, even in the midst of their mourning, or even though they are meek right now, the promise of, of what will be, that they will inherit the earth, gives them blessing right now. So the blessedness that they have right now is theirs by, to use another scriptural phrase, is theirs by faith rather than by sight. Exactly. The, uh, the Beatitudes of Jesus, um, they cannot be seen, right? Because if, if we look for it with our own eyes, we would not conclude that these people, you know, we would say, Jesus, I think you're you're misusing that term, right? Um, these people are not blessed, they're suffering. And that seems to be the opposite of blessed. Um, but again, the blessing that Jesus is speaking is that they have God's um, favor or that they, the kingdom of heaven uh, is theirs. God is, God's grace is given to them, even in the midst of these sufferings. Um, and so again, the, the, the listener, the hearer, is kind of forced to receive these things by faith. Because if you try to receive it um, by sight, if you try to make the Beatitudes um, kind of appear, if I can put it that way, then they, they slip away, right? So, you know, you want to get rid of all mourning. And so you do that by, by what? Well, try to, try to take away anything that would give you sadness in this life. Um, it can't be done, right? And so the, the, Beatitudes of Jesus are they force us, and this is consistent with the way that God deals with us, right? He He gives promises. He doesn't always give the the fulfillment of the promise immediately, um, but through His promise, faith is awakened in a person, and faith trusts the promise of God that will one day be fulfilled. Now there are there are two that break that pattern. Then it, the first mm -hmm. one. And the last one, and the last one breaks the pattern in, in a, a couple of ways, actually. But but go the first one then. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Seeing it as as it is the first, and it also breaks this pattern. It seems like it, we do a good job to to understand what Jesus is saying here. So what yeah. does it mean to be poor in spirit? Sure, the the poor in spirit. Um... There in, in Luke's gospel, it just says, blessed are the poor, um, which, which is sometimes taken to mean um, Jesus came only for, for the poor, materially poor people. Um, and there, there's certainly an overlap here, I think. Um, the, the poor are, I don't know, humanly speaking, more likely 
to be also poor in spirit. But I think that that's crucial to to unpack. Um, poverty of spirit does not always mean um, poverty of possessions. So the poor in spirit are those who, uh, how do we want to put this? Um, those who take no confidence in themselves. I don't know if that's overly, if that's uh, if that's helpful. Um, but that's that's one way to kind of get at what's being talked about here. They're they're people who um, are not. They find nothing of pride or boasting in themselves, but are looking somewhere else for their confidence. I, yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. That when they look within, they see emptiness. They see poverty. So that the blessing must come from outside of them. It's yeah. not going to come yeah. from within. It's it's got to be God's giving, which I think, I mean, that fits in right with what we've been saying about the Beatitudes as a whole, that this is Jesus bestowing on his people his blessing because this is who he is for them. And and it, it starts with this blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How how do we how do we see that? And and the others, I think when you, you start to to read these, well, no, I, I'm gonna start with this question. And you've started to answer it, I think, but it, it bears more more teasing out. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. Are these things that Jesus is saying, in effect, you need to be more poor in spirit, so this is what you receive. You need to mourn. You you need to be more meeker. You need to be meeker. Sure. You need to be more hungry. I mean, is that the force, or is there? Yeah, is I it, gotcha. Or or more Lutheran in, in the common Lutheran terms, is this law, or is it gospel? Yeah, I think um, it's kind of it's kind of hard to answer that because <laughs> um, yeah. they're not they're not given like commandments, right? So if you, if you have this idea of God's law as being His commandments, which is which is accurate and right. Um, these don't really fit into that pattern, but they also don't fit into kind of the, um, you know, if, if you're thinking of the gospel as the, I don't know, say very narrow, a very narrow kind of understanding here of the, the declaration that your sins are forgiven on account of Christ. Well, the, it's not really that either, right? So is it law or is it gospel? I think um, to kind of go back to the way you asked the question, Tim, I don't get the impression that Jesus is here saying, this is what you need to be, and I'm saying this to make you repent, um, you know, as as if here he, uh, he'll he do that. Certainly Jesus knows how to preach um, the full sternness of God's law, um, but it seems to be more along the lines of um, here are the people uh, who this is what it looks like to be part of um, my kingdom, and that that can be taken to mean, yeah, this is what we should try to conform our lives to. But it also seems, to, doesn't it seem more like um, Jesus is saying, as you, uh, as the Spirit is at work in a person's life, he's going to be forming these kinds of people, and they have my blessing, and I want my people to know that they have my blessing, um, precisely so that they are encouraged and not so that they feel like I need to repent more. I don't, I don't know if I've kind of uh, <laughs> hedged my hedged things too much there, but does that, does that start to answer your question? Yeah, I, I think so. I don't, I, I agree with you that Jesus is not here saying be more poor in spirit or be more mournful or, or be more mm -hmm. 
peacemaking. Rather, I think the way you said it, it's a description of what life under the reign of God that has come near in Jesus Christ, this is what it looks like. And so perhaps it functions then as an encouragement to his disciples as they start to follow him, which we've seen them do, as they start to hear his preaching, that their lives are going to begin to be shaped in this way. As you've said, this is what the Spirit is forming in in Christians. And so as they see their lives shaped in this way, according to these words of, of Jesus, they should not lose heart, but rather recognize that because they are with Jesus, that in fact, this is what a, a blessed life looks like, not because they're making it so, yeah. but because they're they're following Jesus and listening to his teaching and he's making it so. A picture more like, and, and you're right, that's not, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't fit so nicely into the, the law gospel categories as sometimes we, we lay them out very nicely in our confirmation classes, kind of like you were saying, right? Well, here's, I mean, I do this with my confirmands, right? I, I, we read a, a book, from, a verse from Leviticus, and I say, is this law or gospel? And the, well, it's law, pastor. And right. then we read John 3, 16, and it's like, well, that's gospel, pastor, of course, right? Yeah. And, and <laughs> it's hard to, to fit that sort of very neat distinction here. Both are certainly at play. And I think if you forced me to, to pick one, I'd, I'd probably say, well, this sounds a lot more like gospel in that, in that Jesus is doing this to you. But but he's also describing a shape of things, and so in that sense, there there is an element of this is how this is his will, but he's giving it to you. So I mean, law gospel maybe is is kind of a hard thing to to pin it down exactly here. I've I've rambled for enough, Pastor Apple. Come back at me. Well, I think yeah, the the law gospel um, law and gospel shapes um, our our proclamation and, and our application. So. Um, when I am talking to a person, uh, those, and, and I'm trying to determine, you know, the condition of a person's soul, um, I'm, I'm trying to determine, do I need to speak God's law to this person? You know, are they secure in their sins, or do I need to, to speak uh, the gospel? Are they troubled by their sins? Um, I don't know that it's necessarily the hermeneutic that we want to use that is kind of the overarching category for um, every Bible verse. Right, because if if you had a verse like um, I don't know, take like uh, for those who believed in him, he gave the power to become children of God. Um, that's in John chapter one. Is that law or gospel? I mean, it's saying that those who believe in Jesus uh, are the children of God. But is that is that law? We need to believe in him, you know, as if faith is something we drum up in ourselves. Um, so I, I wouldn't want to say. I'm going to look here and, and try to determine, is verse 3 law or gospel? It can be used to encourage a person, uh, but it could also, I suppose it could be used if a person is um, proud of themselves or is taking some kind of confidence in themselves, you could point to verse 3 and say, you know, Jesus confers his blessing not on the self-righteous, but on the poor in spirit. And that means, you know, we all, we all must humble ourselves before him. Yeah, so the the proclamation of the Beatitudes then might hit a person in a different way. I think that that's a, a good point to yeah. make. Yeah. So so but then thinking of as Jesus' disciples are hearing this, then this this being the shape of their lives following him, it is a blessed one because they are following him. I think that invites us to reflect upon the Beatitudes as 
how they apply to Christ himself. We, we talked, I've talked about this with a couple of, of guests already, how the life of Christ casts a shadow on, on the shape of the Old Testament and, and the believers then, and it also casts a shadow on, on the New Testament and the lives of the believers now. So how do we see the life of Christ within the Beatitudes as he gives them? Yeah. Uh, well, do you want to go through speci- a specific one? We could we could just take one as kind of a model. But you're, I think you're absolutely right. These are these are this is the first again to kind of bring the context back out. This is the first um, you know prolonged teaching of Jesus, and as he's talking about what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven uh, and to be a dis- one of his disciples. I think it's it's a good thing to say, well, Jesus is not here saying, you know, um, do what I say, but not what I do. With Jesus, actions and words are, are perfectly harmonious. So if this is uh, supposed to be the life of the disciple, well, he as the teacher is not just going to say, do these things, be like this. He's actually going to uh, embody his own message, if I can put it that way. So if you look at the life of Jesus— um, you know, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, look at, look at Christ and see how in his own life and his own ministry, um, he, he would have every reason in the world to be proud of himself, right? I mean, he's sinless. And so uh, the, <laughs> who, who can take pride in themselves? Those who think that they've accomplished something. Well, who would, who would be the one who we would say has would have that, uh, you know, the right to take any pride in themselves, it'd be Jesus. Um, but he doesn't. He's entirely, um, he, he never makes boasts about himself or claims to be, you know, the source of, you know, I'm, this is my own teaching, my own understanding, but he is entirely dependent on God the Father, even uh, in his crucifixion, right? He's still calling out, my God, my God. You know, and then he cries out, "Why have you forsaken me?" But there's still that that lamentation comes from a heart that is trusting uh, in the Father. Continue through the the rest of the beatitudes that Jesus gives here. We we haven't done a ton of looking in depth at what's there sure. in each specific beatitude, and I think looking at them in the light of Christ's own life is probably a helpful way to go through them. So so keep okay. going through the beatitudes yeah. with with Christ's life. Yeah, so uh, the next one here is blessed are those who mourn, and uh, mourners, we, we're all certainly um, in touch with what it means to mourn uh, as we live in a fallen world, but if you look at Christ's own life, I think um, everybody uh, will have memorized the verse, Jesus wept, right? <laughs> um, but that's a, that's a great example of Christ himself mourning, um, not just the death of Lazarus, but um, you can think of, of the way that we mourn the world. Um, surely Jesus uh, feels, uh, feels things on a deeper level because he perceives the reality of the world um, and of the sinful condition of us all uh, even more deeply than we do, right? So um, he sees not just, um, you know, death as the separation of our loved ones and the loss of a loved one, but he sees it as, you know, this thing that was contrary to God's design from the get-go, right? He, he knows the full curse of death. Um, so he mourns Lazarus's death. Um, he mourns, I think you could see this in his own um, miracles, right? When people come and they're begging for mercy, um, there's often this description, and he was moved by compassion, Right, and that compassion that Jesus feels is this 
this um, disgust or this sense of um, deep, this deep uh, feeling that emerges when he's confronted with his fallen creation. And out of love, he acts, he moves to, uh, to have mercy. Um, I could, we could go on with morning if you want to, Tim, but should well, I keep going here? We've, we've got, we got just under nine minutes left on the morning. So keep, keep taking us through them. Okay. Through so the next the meek, Beatitudes, I mean, um, yeah. Sure. Sure. Blessed are the meek here. Um, I don't ever get the, the sense that Jesus was particularly, um, bashful about saying things. I think sometimes <laughs> we associate being meek with being timid or being shy and Jesus was not shy. Um, and, and, Everyone recognized that he spoke with authority, um, but he is meek in that he's lowly. He is humble, right? And so uh, some of the, I guess, famous passages, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is uh, light and it's not burdensome. So again, that lowliness, and um, and you can even see just in the example of his own life, um, he, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So that humbling of himself, uh, the humiliation of the Son of God, um, certainly would be kind of climactically seen in how he suffers on the cross for us. Uh, so I, I think there's many ways that you could see uh, meekness. As far as the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, um, you can see Jesus is not just uh, looking out for, uh, I don't know, social justice, but his concern is for the righteousness of God. And um, that certainly will sometimes include, um, you know, people who are outcast or ostracized, but it's, it's really a matter of uh, a sinner being saved or, or a person um, being justified before God. And that's Jesus's food and that's his drink. I, I love one time in, uh, I think this is in John chapter four, uh, he's talking with the woman at the well and maybe I, I don't know exactly where this is, but he says to his disciples, I have food that you don't even know about. <laughs> and they're like, what is he talking about? And he says, my food is to do my father's will. Um, that's what it means to hunger and thirst for righteousness, to have that, you know, our, our deepest longing to be that God's will would be done. Um, yeah, it's, that's merciful, it. that is in John 4, Pastor, Pastor Apple, that is in is John it? 4, okay. after, after, yeah, yeah, after yeah, yeah. The, the interaction. So keep going. Um, blessed are the merciful. I touched on this a little bit with the morning, um, but you can see this, especially in his miracles. Um, that there, it's kind of interesting to look at the miracles of Jesus um, and consider, think about it this way, Tim. Um, think of how many miracles Jesus passed by. Right, Everywhere he looked, I suppose he could have performed a miracle, right? Because every, every place he sees some problem, he could fix it, right? He could just fix it right away. Um, but of course, he's, he's come to provide the ultimate healing and not just the temporary ones. And yet in his mercy, he kind of can't help himself along the way. So when, you know, a father comes and asks to have his um, son, you know, um, exercised from a demon, Jesus does it, right? And, and it's always out of mercy that he acts. Um, the pure in heart, I think this has to do with um, if you if you think of Jesus's teaching, this is in Matthew 15. He'll talk about the human heart, and out of the human heart come the things that defile. And uh, he he has a whole list. I think there's 12 things uh, that come out of the human heart, and none of them are any good. 
<laughs> um, except the heart of Jesus is, is uh, from his heart proceeds everything that he does. So from the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you can see that in Jesus, the purity of his thoughts, the purity of his actions, the purity of his motives, you might say, of his words are, are displayed in, throughout his life. Um, peacemakers, um, they're, they're, again, here you have to, to take the example of Christ and remember that we are not called to be just like Christ. Um, we are to, to model ourselves after him, but he does have a unique um, office, right? He is the one who is the Redeemer. And so the peace that he makes is not just peace between uh, brother and sister. Um, he says he's even come sometimes to cast division. Um, but ultimately, it's the peace that comes between God and man. And um, through his cross, he's going to reconcile God and man. Uh, and so he is kind of the, the prototypical or the archetypal peacemaker. And then finally, the, the Beatitudes close, as, as we pointed out briefly, with the final one being, well, no, I guess you haven't gotten quite to the final one yet, have you? There's a persecuted, those who are persecuted, and then blessed are you who are persecuted. What about mm -hmm. these, these last two, Pastor Apple? Uh, you want to say just in the life of Jesus? I mean, I think that, that that's evident to see, right? He is persecuted, um, not because he's done anything wrong, but um, precisely because he says what, what is right and accurate, and, and uh, the scribes and the Pharisees perceive and they know that he's speaking against them. And they, uh, I think in some sense, they know that he's right, but they refuse to admit it. And so they, they, um, you know, they're angered and they're very hostile against him. And ultimately they're going to crucify him. Um, does that, as far as yeah. in the life of Jesus, you can yeah. see that one, but there is, there is this kind of at the very end, you have a break from the normal pattern because Jesus does not say blessed are the and then refer to some third-party group, um, but he says, blessed are you, and he uses that second person, I believe it's a plural pronoun there, it's not like you singular, but it's blessed are y'all who are being persecuted for my sake. And so again, the, um, the Beatitudes are spoken by Jesus, um, and they're also lived out by Jesus, but here at the end you can see he is going to be the one who... Um, who his own, he's the kind of the lightning rod um, that's going to divide those who are outside the Beatitudes from those who are within the Beatitudes. So, Pastor Apple, then, that, and that last Beatitude with its change from third person, the they, to now second person, you, provides a way forward into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Those who've had their lives shaped by Christ in this way now going forward, this is this is for you. This is what is happening to you. And, and the Beatitudes provide that entrance in seeing ourselves as those who are poor in spirit, those who come to God with nothing but are, are filled by him and our lives are, are shaped in this way. We've got, we've got just under two minutes here left on the morning, Pastor Apple. We could, every time I talk about the Beatitudes, I think I'm going to nail it down. And, and once again, the Beatitudes are <laughs> wrong. That, that there's just so yeah. much there to talk about. So with about two minutes left, kind of wrap it up and, and, and help us see why the Beatitudes particularly are important for us as Christians today. Yeah, I think, I think they're absolutely essential for us, especially, um, especially uh, I think in the times that we live in, Tim, in America, I mean, this, you can kind of become narrow in your focus 
um, it's helpful to remember that the church has existed long before you or I were born. And the church has existed in all kinds of different circumstances. And sometimes the culture around us is very receptive to Christianity. Other times it's very hostile. Um, But in our times, we're going through sort of um, certainly some upheaval, um, I I think you'd agree. And uh, I think it's going to be essential that we recover this kind of understanding that our blessing um, comes from Christ and his word and is not dependent on the circumstances of our own life. Because what hap- what and the reason I think that that's crucial is because the church is um, becoming more and more kind of outside the mainstream and and not just not just kind of scoffed at, but even mocked and ridiculed. Um, to recover this sense of that's that's okay. That's not something foreign to what it means to be a Christian. And you can see it in Jesus' own teaching. Um, Blessed are are they who are reviled for for my sake. Um, This is not some kind, it's not like something strange is happening to us. Um, But Jesus says, you're in line with the prophets before you. Pastor David Appold is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Paducah, Kentucky, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Pastor Appold, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Tim. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.